Amen. John chapter number 2 and verse number 1. John chapter 2 and verse number 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? For my hour hath not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatever he says for you to do, do it. Now there was six now there was set there six water pots, pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And he took it to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that had been made in wine and did not know where the water had come from, but only the servants knew, the master of the feast called unto the bridegroom and said to them, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have drank well, but you, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. And this, He went down to Capernaum, He, His mother, His brothers, His disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Lord, add the blessing to the preaching of the Word and everyone said, Amen. People who um, don't believe in the supernatural, people who don't believe in miracles, read the same Bible that you and I read. You know that? People who believe that homosexuality is an appropriate lifestyle, read the same Bible that you and I read. They try to justify it by the Bible. People who don't believe in miracles try to justify the Bible. This is the Bible don't teach that miracles really happen any longer. So my point is, is that you can use the Bible to justify any action you want. Am I right about it? I mean, you really can use the Bible to justify any action that you want. I mean, I grew up in church. We used the Bible for a lot of things that when you start to study, that's not what the Bible really meant. Now, we're not here to, to make people feel bad for different things. I'm just saying, logically, you can use the Bible for anything you want. How many would agree with that? And one of the things I found out about the Bible is that when you study the Bible... You've got to study the Bible using Scripture with Scripture. All right? Because you can teach anything by just pulling out one Scripture. Am I right about it? You can take one Scripture and teach anything you want when that is not the appropriate interpretation of it. How do I get the appropriate interpretation of it? Scripture interprets Scripture. Am I right about it? So everybody say this with me. It's four levels. Somebody say Scripture. Tradition, reason, experience. Does that make sense? Scripture is always first. Scripture is number one. You always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Number two, there's tradition. What has the church formally done throughout the 2,000 years? You can't neglect that. And then there's reason, because God has given you a mind. And as Pentecostals, you can't check your mind out at the front door. He's called you to love the Lord your God with your mind. The Apostle Paul actually on Mars Hill reasoned with the people using intellect. So you can use your mind 
to serve God. And number four, experience. You know, all of us can have an experience, but that experience has to point to Scripture. Reason has to point to Scripture. Tradition has to point to Scripture. Scripture is number one. Now, in the Catholic Church, they will agree with this, but they've changed it. They have Scripture plus tradition is number one. So, they may not have, they may do things that's not recorded in the Bible because they say tradition is equal with the Scripture. We disagree with that. Scripture is number one. It doesn't matter what tradition says as long as tradition points to what is written in the Bible. Can I hear an amen? So Scripture is number one, then tradition, reason, experience. So what am I saying? I'm saying this, that when you look at the Bible and you start to look at the book of John, the book of John is pretty firm that God performed miracles. Okay? And a lot of people will say, well, the reason that miracles were was recorded was to validate who Jesus was. But after the Bible was written, there's no need for miracles. The Scripture records that Jesus healed the sick. All of that pointed to who Jesus was. And after His crucifixion and resurrection and after the death of the apostles, miracles stopped. They ceased to be. And I have a hard time believing that, Pastor David. I have a hard time that the last apostle was dying in the year 90 A.D., and as he's dying on his deathbed, the Apostle John said, you better go on the streets and get everybody because when I die, all miracles stop. And I, I have a hard time believing they were lined up at his house because they knew on March the 5th, 90 A.D., he's dead and miracles stop. I have a hard time believing that. Can I hear an amen? And if you look at the book of John, there is miracle after miracle. Can I just read one miracle, several miracles to you? Uh, the first one is chapter 2, there's water turned into wine. Chapter 4, there's another miracle. The healing of the noble son. Chapter 5, there was a man that was a paralytic that couldn't walk. He was healed. Chapter 6, there was the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. Chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. Chapter 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Chapter 21, he provides fish in a net. My goodness. The book of John is filled with one miracle after another, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 21, one miracle after another. Now, should you run after miracles? Absolutely not. Jesus forbids us to run after miracles. You remember the Pharisees asked for a sign, and Jesus called them a wicked generation for asking for a sign. He said, the only sign I'm going to give you is Jonah in the well. You shouldn't run after miracles. Miracles and signs and wonders is to validate the Scriptures, is to point to the Scriptures. You don't run after them. You don't make idols out of miracles and, 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 and dreams and vision. You don't do that. Those things happen to point us to Jesus. And if they're not pointing us to Jesus, then we should discard them. Can I hear an amen? And sometimes those things won't happen in our life. Sometimes God doesn't work that way. Sometimes He does but Scripture should always come first. So what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying this, that the book of John, as a holistic view, as a holistic view, tells us a story. Remember I told you chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, 11, 12, and 21 had specific miracles that occurred. And I believe that if you look closely in those miracles, Jesus was trying to tell us something, or the author here, is trying to convey a story. He's trying to tell us that, number one, in chapter two, 
he turns the water into wine. In other words, he has power over elements. Number two, in chapter four, there was a sick person, a paralytic. Jesus wasn't actually there. He spoke the word. So Jesus has power over time and space. Am I right? Chapter 6, there's a feeding of the 5,000. He walks on the water in the same chapter. It illustrates to us that he has power over nature. He has power over lack because of the 5,000. Chapter 9, there's a blind man that gets healed. What is the author trying to tell us? He has power over physical limitations. Chapter 11, a man by the name of Lazarus is raised from the dead. The author wants you to know that he has the power even over death. Hallelujah. And chapter 21, Jesus himself provides fish in a net. The author is trying to tell us that he has power over resources. So what is John trying to tell us in the book of John? The author is trying to tell us that he really is the God that can take care of any situation and every problem in your life. Whether it deals with lack, whether it deals with death, whether it deals with resources, whether it deals with lack, whether it's time and distance, whether it's, the, whether it's time and space or elements or nature, don't worry about it. He has the power to take care of all of it. And it's ironic to me that in the book of John, there are seven I am's. Where does that come from? It comes from the Old Testament where Moses took off his shoes at the burning bush. And Moses says, who am I going to say sent me? And the bush said, which is God, tell him I am sent you. So even the book of John is filled with the miraculous to let us know that whatever you need and whatever you lack, he is I am, not I was or I will be. He is I am. Can I hear an amen? He is I am. And so we come to a story tonight. We come to a story where they run out of wine. Now, I know there's lots of people that would try to debate with me that Jesus never drank real wine. But let's just get real, folks. Where's my elders? You all, you all agree with that, pastoral staff? Yeah, let's just get real. Jesus drank wine. Hope that, I hope I don't have a church split over that. But let's not try to get up here and try to say it was grape juice and, you know, it was point this, point that. He drank wine. Now, he didn't get drunk. Am I right about it? He sipped. It's not going to make anybody drunk. All right? Now, could it be that wine back then is different from the wine now? Possibly, because we live in a society in America where everything is to the extreme. Can I hear an amen? So maybe the wine now is a little stronger than it was back then. Granted, you know, so you've got to be careful. You know, y'all will be proud of me. You will be proud. Y'all ready for this? I am officially a coffee drinker. I, and I don't know, Carrie, if this is wrong. But the thing of it is, I always told myself I would never, ever drink coffee, ever. Until about two months ago, Pastor Ronnie comes in the office and says, Pastor, can I get you a cup of coffee? And I said, 
dude, I don't even like coffee. He says, oh, but you'll like this coffee. I said, oh, really? And so you know what Pastor Ronnie did? He filled over half of it with vanilla creamer. And so I tasted it for the first time, David, and I thought, where has this been all of my life? I know I'm going to get married now. I'm a coffee drinker, and I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. So I find myself the other day, on Saturday morning I was here studying or something, I find myself drinking coffee. So if Jesus can drink wine, I can drink coffee. Come on, somebody, I'm just joking. All right, let's go on. Somebody say amen. So, Jesus drinks wine here. And they run out of wine. His mother said, so, what am I supposed to do about it? Jesus makes a statement, verse number four. He said, woman... What does your concern have to do with me? My hour hath not come. And now at first glance, it sounds like that Jesus is being disrespectful because I know y'all women out there, if somebody came up to you and said, woman, that would not go really well with you. But you've got to understand here that the Greek word for woman is actually the word for lady. This is the way it was translated when it was translated. So actually it was a proper, it was a proper uh, pronoun here. It was lady. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. He was referring to her in a proper sense, not being disrespectful. The very first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus is at a wedding. And then why is this significant? Now get this. Jesus, the Bible says, is at a wedding with his disciples. And at the wedding, you see his mother there. Now what's the significance of this? Whoever is getting married is probably either related to Jesus or very close to Jesus. Because Jesus is there, his mother is there, and the disciples are there. So whoever is getting married is very close to him, and some theologians believe it's a family member that Jesus shows up at the wedding because Mary seems like she's preoccupied with the wine. It looks as though Mary is hosting the event. She is making sure they don't, I don't want to run out of wine. So what's the point here? This is what I want you to see. The point here is this. This is the first miracle of Jesus. And Jesus is found here with his disciples and with his mother before he went into public ministry. The point of the story is this. Before God calls you into the public spotlight, he first calls you to minister to your family. You see that? Jesus is with his mother. We assume it's somebody close or a family member. This is his first miracle before Jesus is thrust into the public light. And I believe it stands to reason that before you are called to minister to other people, your primary calling is first to minister to your family. Jesus is found here ministering to people who he is close with. He is ministering to family members. And ladies and gentlemen, that's very important. Because the family is the first institution that God ever created. It is at the, if there is no family, there is no church. Can I hear an amen? I know we stress church attendance and you should come to church. But you should develop and cultivate a spiritual atmosphere at your home. Somebody say amen.
And so the very first thing that God does here, or Jesus does, is He ministers to people who He's the closest with. If you can't minister to people who you are closest with, then how are you going to minister to people? How are you going to minister to the thousands? Before Jesus ministered to the 5,000, He ministered to His family first at a wedding. Let's minister to our family first before we preach to the 5,000. So Jesus is found there at the wedding. It symbolizes that Jesus puts His stamp of approval on marriage. One man one woman. He is there to sanctify marriage because it's God's union. It's God's institution that God created. Marriage is a symbol of the church and the people of God, the church and Himself. And so you see them at a wedding. You see Him ministering to His family. Now I want you to see that the Bible says, you've got to look really closely here, in verse number 1, on the third day, Look at verse number 1, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee. Why is that important? Because get this, if you're rich in the Jewish days, if you had money or resources, weddings typically lasted seven days. Okay, seven days. If you did not have the resources, then weddings usually lasted for three days. Okay, so this tells me that this was a, this was a lower-end wedding, how do I know that? Because the Scripture emphasizes the third day. And number two, they're running out of wine. Okay? So, so we, we assume here that maybe they didn't, they're not celebrating here for seven days. And they could be. But we're assuming that this is the last day. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee. So here, Jesus, I believe, demonstrates a principle to us. Not only does He minister to His family first, before he goes into the spotlight, because family is number one. Ministering to your family is first. Not only do you see that principle, but you also see the principle that Jesus provides wine at the wedding on the third day. In other words, God's timing is different than our timing, isn't it? He shows up at the last moment. He shows up when the wine is already out. He shows up on the last day of the wedding. And listen, you can't get discouraged when God don't show up when you think He should. But I promise you, He's an on-time God and He'll show up on the last day. And I hear an amen. Even when the wine is almost ran out, He'll show up. You see, in, in Judea, hospitality was a very important thing. And so running out of wine was almost a disgrace at a wedding. Women, was, women were known for their hospitable acts that they would do. They would wash your feet. They would feed you. If you think we eat a lot in America, try to go overseas. They feed you every few hours because it's a hospitality thing. They want to, they want to uh, express their appreciation and love and honor for you. You see, it's interesting to me. This is what's interesting to me in this story. You know, every time you see Jesus working in the Gospels, now get this, every time you see Jesus working in the Gospels, Jesus never abused His power. Think about it. Every time you see Jesus doing a miracle, He never abused His power. Somebody shout that out. He never, say it again, He never, Jesus never abused His power 
Every time he performed a miracle, he never abused it. There was somebody who couldn't walk. He didn't abuse their, his power. He healed them. He gave them, them the ability to walk. They were hungry. He fed them. In other words, miracles were meant to meet somebody's needs. A miracle is what we define as something that goes against the natural law. So Jesus would perform a miracle to meet somebody's needs. He never abused His power. Now, I, I've read this before and I thought to myself, boy, if I was Jesus, I would probably go into Jerusalem and I would suspend all the Pharisees in the air and laugh at them. You know, if, if we had that much power, we would probably abuse it. Now, isn't it interesting? Isn't that what the devil wanted Jesus to do? If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple. The devil wanted Jesus to abuse his power. And you've got to be careful with people who are in authority that abuses their power. Because somebody who has power, the power is not for you to manipulate and to show off how much authority you have. And the volume of your voice is not contingent about how much authority you have. It's not. Jesus never abused His power. He always used His power to meet somebody's need. Never abused His power. I think that John is conveying to us that if you have power, be very careful how you use it. Church leaders, be very careful how you use your power. Mothers and fathers, government officials, we have to be careful how we use that power. You see, there was a blind man who needed to see, he healed him. There was a lame man that needed to walk, he gave him the ability to walk. You see, he moved in such a way to meet people's needs. Another thing you see here is that Jesus refers, and I just alluded to this, Jesus refers to his mother as woman, which is translated lady. Now, why didn't he call her mother? Because I believe that John here is trying to demonstrate a principle to us that Jesus is referring to his mother as lady because he's letting her know that she needs the same redemption as everybody else. She needed to be redeemed just like everybody else. You see, the correct translation of this is lady. What does your concern have to do with me? One translation reads it like this. Lady, this is my concern not yours, and in my timing, I will perform. You see, that's what Jesus was trying to demonstrate to his mother. Listen, this is my concern. I'll take care of it. But when it's my timing, I will do it. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not that God can't do the things we're asking him to do. Most of the time, it's a timing issue. It's a growth issue. And we've got to be patient with God and we've got to understand that, listen, He's God, I'm not, and I've got to trust in your timing. I've got to trust in what you're doing because your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. You're wiser than I am. And that's what is so difficult in our growing with God. You see, Jesus says to him, Jesus says, how many water pot pots do you have? They said, well, we got six. Jesus said, fill them to the brim. And this is what I want you to see here. Every time 
that Jesus demonstrated a miracle, Jesus required something of people. Before he demonstrated a miracle here, he required the people to get the water pots and fill them with water. Sometimes we want God to do it all, but this story demonstrates to us that if you want God to work in and through your life, there is something that you've got to do. He said, I want you to get the water pots and I want you to fill them with water. You see, because Paul says, we are co-laborers together with God. You see, there's something that you've got to do. There's, some, there's a part that you've got to play. And before he demonstrated his miraculous power, they had a part, and that part was they had to fill the water pots with water. Isn't that right? Am I right about it? They filled them with water to the brim. I just love their faith, Pastor David. They, 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 they said, you know, we're going to fill this thing to the brim because we need as much wine as possible here. And they filled it up to the brim. And I, I thought about this. Have you ever thought about this miracle? Just really think about this miracle. Where does wine come from? Grapes. Where does grapes come from? Vines. Where does vines come from? Seeds. You get the point. Where do seeds grow at? They grow where? They grow in the earth. And without water and sunlight, it would never grow. You say, what are you saying, Pastor? Well, in this story, there are, there are no grapes. There's no vines. There's no seeds, no dirt. Just wine. Because... There's no grapes, but there is God. There's no vines, but there is God. There's no seeds, and there is God. You see, that's what a miracle is. A miracle bypasses the natural law here. And he performed a miracle out of nothing. Boy, that brings great encouragement to me because I feel like nothing sometimes. You ever felt that way? And this miracle demonstrates to me that God can perform the miraculous out of nothing. And that's great encouragement because when I feel at the lowest and I feel like I'm not worth anything, I'm reminded that in this story, He bypassed all of that and created a miracle out of nothing. Now there was water there. And some people will spiritualize it and say the water represents the Word and without the Word, there is no miracle. And I would agree with that. The bottom line is, as he bypassed natural law and performed a miracle. Now, in closing tonight, why do I need to preach this message to you? Am I preaching this message to you to try to convey to you that I believe in miracles? No, because I do believe in them and you do too. I'm not preaching this message to try to convince you that God can do the supernatural. You already know that. You're mature Christians. I'm not trying to convince you that miracles still happen and I'm not trying to convince you because most of everything I just said tonight you agree with and you have nodded your head and you agree with me. So what is the purpose of preaching this sermon on a Sunday night when you already agree with it? It's not like it's a new revelation to you. Oh, 
there may be some few things that you've never thought of, but generally you agree with it. So what's the purpose of me preaching such a sermon on a Sunday night when you already agree with it? Because a part of preaching is to persuade you to a new idea. So what idea am I trying to persuade you when you already believe in miracles? Because I believe that when you look at the Scripture, sometimes we bypass the most significant things found in the story. You know why we bypass it, Pastor Larry? We bypass it because we say to ourselves, well, that's good, I believe in that, that's awesome. And we miss the most significant parts of the story. You see, I believe that the most significant part of this story is found in verse number 11 and 12. The verse number 11 says, John 2 verse 11, this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee when he manifested his glory to his disciples. Well, number one, the reason that Jesus is performing miracles here is because he is validating who he is. That's the purpose of a miracle. Jesus is manifesting His glory to validate that He is the Son of God. He is just not man only. He is the Son of the living God. Can I hear an amen? He is more than just a man. He is a, so the purpose of miracles of verse number 11 is that Jesus would manifest His glory. But you already know that, don't you? I don't have to convince you tonight that Jesus is the Son of God. You know He's the Son of God. You know that He is God in human flesh. You know that there was a virgin by the name of Mary who gave birth to Him, and angels came out on the Judean hillside to sing happy birthday to Him. You already know that. But what am I trying to express? Verse number 12 is the climax of the whole thing. Verse number 12, after this, He went down to Capernaum. His mother, His brothers, His disciples... And they did not stay there many days. You see, verse number 9 said that the master of the feast had tasted it. And he said, but the servants who drawn the water knew. Is that right? So, here, look at it. Verse 9, you have servants. Verse 12, you have disciples. Let me say it again. Verse 12, you have disciples. Verse 9, you have servants. Both of them saw the miracle. As a matter of fact, the servants were there. They saw the miracle. The disciples, his mother was there. They saw the miracle. But yet, John is careful to identify two groups of people. There are servants, and then there are the close people to Jesus. The disciples, his mother. And I think that John is trying to say this, that there are two groups of people in the church. There are those who are servants, and then there are those who are disciples. What are you saying? Both saw the miracle. Both understood the significance of it. But only the disciples went with them. The servants never went. 
Why is that significant? Because if I was there and I saw a man perform a miracle like that, I would drop everything I had and follow him. But yet the scripture is clear that the servants was there and the disciples and his mother went with him. Because there are two groups of people and there are two groups tonight. Both groups experience the presence of God. Both groups will see the miraculous. Both groups may cry. Both groups will say, Lord, boy, the presence of God is strong. But there are only those who will go with Jesus all the way. Servants are only there to see the miracle. Servants are only there to taste the wine. But there are another group of people that will say, Jesus, whether you perform the miracle or not, I still believe in you. No matter where you go, I'm still going with you. You don't have a house. You don't have a pillow to lay your head at night. I'm still going with you, Jesus, all the way. And what happens is that we develop a group of people in church that are so hyped up about miracles that they follow the miracles and they don't follow Jesus as a disciple to the very end. You had servants who saw the miracle and you have disciples. Listen to my heart tonight. You see, the Holy Spirit is saying this, are you willing to follow Him even when you don't get your miracle? Are you willing to lay it down? Pick up the cross. Follow Him even when He doesn't perform a miracle. Mary, can you follow him even when he offends you? What are you? Are you just doing church to do church like a servant? Because you can do, you can be a servant and not have a heart of serving. You can obey and submit, but inside be rebellious. Or are you going to be a disciple? Because you know what a disciple is? A disciple is a follower of Jesus who follows Him all the way. We used to sing that old song in church. I'm on my way to Canaan land. I don't know why we always had to sing about Mama, but we always threw Mama in there. If Mama don't go, bless Mama's heart. I don't know why we didn't ever preach about daddies. It was always Mama teaching angels how to sing. I met some mamas who couldn't sing. Come on, somebody. Mama, don't go. Go. And if daddy don't go, I'm going. Are you a disciple? Somebody who will go all the way? Or are you a servant who's just there for the miracle? You see, look at me. It's easy to go to church when there's a lot of momentum. It's easy to go to church when, oh boy, it's just growing, exploding, wonderful, Ooh, glory. It's easy. This is what servants do. But a disciple is somebody that says, I'm just in this for the long haul. You don't have to impress me. You don't, they, they don't have to be, I want miracles, but if they don't show up, Jesus is enough for me. Jesus is all there. Come on, somebody. I'm in this thing for the long haul. That's hard to come by nowadays. 
People are so flighty. Ephesians 4.12 He's given pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles to equip the saints for the work of the ministry that they be no more like children tossed to So what does God expect of us? God expects you to be a disciple who's committed all the way. In sickness, I'm committed. In death, I'm committed. In bankruptcy, I'm committed. In offenses, I'm committed. Come on, somebody. I'm hurt, but I'm committed. I want to give up. I feel like I want, but I am committed. Made it all the way. So that's the significance of John chapter 2. Calls all of us to be disciples. Whether I love miracles and I want them to happen, but I love Jesus more.